an interview starts right now. Where's Trey Martin from? Well, I'm from New Jersey. Uh, the city is Union City. It's right next to Hoboken, where Mr. Sinatra was born. Uh, it's like, you know, a mile away from the uh, area that he was born, right next to Jersey City. And, and Newark is only about 20 minutes from me. So I have a lot of friends from that area. Well, I'm from New Brunswick, New Brunswick, New Jersey. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah, and I know New Brunswick. Sure, of course. Yeah. yeah. I have a couple of friends in New Brunswick. Uh, do you, where do you live now, Sabrina? I'm in D.C. Oh, well, you're in D.C. D.C. I thought you were in yeah. D.C., but I wasn't sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, but but uh, home is home, and, um, you know, being an Army brat, being all over the place, I still 
consider, you know, New Jersey and the, the East Coast my home. I see, I see. Yes. I'm very familiar with I'm very familiar with New Brunswick because it's around the Johnson Park area. Were you familiar uh-huh. with Johnson Park? Oh, very much so. We had many reunions there. Oh, you did? Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a nice park. Yeah, we used to it go there is. a lot, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I have uh, relatives that live not too far from there. And um, in terms of your upbringing, was it musical? Well, I mean, I started uh, singing when I was in kindergarten, and I started playing guitar around at about an eight-year-old. My uncles were both guitar players. They were both Django Reinhardt uh, uh, fans, and uh, they used to play at the, at the house all the time. So I guess I was influenced by that, you know, by them. Um, in terms of the uh, burgeoning rock and roll scene, when did it actually bite you? When were your interests, and where were your interests in the beginning? Well, my first interest, well, I mean, I was interested in uh, in rock and roll from the start because I was, right around that time, I was uh, a preteen, and uh, around, when I was around nine years old, I believe, I remember sitting outside Susan Roebuck with my father in the car and uh, Alan Free playing Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis. And that's really my first uh, uh, thing that I I locked into Elvis and I started uh, singing a lot of Elvis songs after that. Even though I was singing before that, but different things. But um, um, that's when I first got sparked by rock and roll is when I first heard Elvis. Alan Freed and many of the, what they called disc jockeys back then, actually ruled what you heard on the radio. Um, Absolutely. What were, you, what were you listening to in uh, Hoboken and the area you're from? Well, I was listening to probably um, one of my early first uh, Happening records that I that I loved was Earth Angel by by the Penguins. Uh-huh. You know. Uh huh. And as I liked the group harmony stuff, and uh, I was very enthralled by uh, the Penguins and uh, Earth Angel. And going into your own venture in the music industry, um, it must have been interesting. I wanted to go and ask you what it was like actually not only launching a label, working with artists. What was the, the, the thermostat like back in those times? Well, uh, generally, working with artists is, is, is not easy because you're dealing with a lot of personalities. And um, uh, like when I dealt with a group of girls, which I, who I discovered with my partner, Johnny Powell, we had the Rome record label, and uh, we had, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, not skirmishes, but a lot of things back and forth where they don't want this, they don't, you know, everybody, everybody thinks they're a star all the time. They, you know, they have a little taste of success, and they, uh, uh, they, they come out, they think they, they think they know everything. It's like a teenager, a, a, a young kid, they all think they know everything, you know, 
they know better than the parents and, and everything like that. I, and it's the same thing in the record business. And, uh, the funny thing is, when I discovered the Earls, who did the first record on my record label, um, they, uh, they started thinking that they, they were ruling us. I mean, they wanted to produce us. You know, after a while, I mean, it's all, you know, we were the producers. We made records for a couple of years before we started with them. And then right away they, they wanted to, to, uh, to tell us what to do, you know. And it wasn't wow. easy dealing with, with artists, you know, and we had a, like a handshake agreement initially. And then, uh, actually they ran out on our contract after, um, we had a little thing about a song I recorded. That I I picked for them. That was a demo, and it came out okay, but it wasn't right. I didn't like it. I was going to go in and recut it, make a better record, and they decided just to run to another label, and they recorded that song on another label, the song that I picked for them, and uh, it was a big hit on the other label. So it's uh, yeah, not, wow. not easy dealing with the artists. Yeah. I have talked to many artists, from Dionne Warwick to, you know, you name right. it. I'm even talking to you, and I mentioned, um, uh, you know, what was it like working with various people, various producers or whatnot. And I find out that many of these superstar and or stars didn't like some of their signature hits. So when you're yeah, saying, you know, they, they, they in fact, they hated it. They hated it. They hated it. Like, do you know the way to San Jose? She wasn't really into that one. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So, I never met so. Dion. I never met Dion. I worked with Burt Backrack a lot, but I met, never met Dion. But I knew Dee Dee. Dee Dee was a great singer. I don't know what happened to her, but she was terrific. Dion's uh, sister was great, Dee Dee Warwick. You know? Yes, did she? Yeah, no, I, I I believe she's passed away. But didn't she? Wouldn't she the first person to record Janis Joplin's "Piece of My Heart"? Wasn't she the first? I'm not sure because I know the guys that wrote "Piece of My Heart" and produced it. But uh, you know, Burt Burns and and uh, Jerry Ragavoy. But um, I uh, I didn't know Dee Dee. Maybe maybe she did the demo on it for them. She might have. She was a great singer, Dee Dee. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they, don't, don't get me wrong. Dion, Dion was great. Dion Warwick was great, but Dee Dee was a more of a soul singer than Dion. Dion was more of a pop soul singer. Dee Dee was really a down and dirty, like a real heavyweight rocker, you know, a soul rocker, you know. So uh -huh. I, that's my because I worked with her a couple of times, you know. Many. Many artists, though, getting back to your point, um, I interviewed someone who said, you know, so-and-so wanted me to do this and so-and-so, and he was mentioning all these big labels, bigger than the ones that he actually recorded with. And I right. said, wait a minute, you mean the famous so-and-so wanted you to do that? He goes, but nah, I don't do that stuff. <laughs> I said, wait oh, a minute. <laughs> Yeah, I know. No, they're too big to do. They're too big to to listen to someone who has all the experience that they've they put into the business, and then they try to they they just fluff them off. You know, it's a, it's it's really funny like that. But there, are, yeah. listen, there. My relationships with artists were always really good. You know, I never had any real bad 
relationships with any artists. Like I, I recorded the BT Express. I discovered the BT Express and recorded them. I don't know if you saw that on my on my uh, little bio, but uh, I discovered them initially, and uh, they're a bunch of nice guys. They were from Bedford Stuyvesant, and I uh, went to uh, rehearse them a couple of times. Almost got killed in that area because it was it wasn't a uh-huh. uh, it wasn't a fun area to be around. But uh, um, but uh, listen, we all got along and uh, and we did well. You know, uh, my partners and I did. Did, did them well, and we did ourselves well with the BT Express. The music industry in the from 50s through 60s, many of the um, influences of the 50s kind of come along with that doo-wop sound of the early 60s. Then you've got a music shift. Can you talk to that? What was going on after Remember Then and all these other things? All of a sudden, you've got a major music shift. What's going on in the music industry in 62, 63, 64? What's going on? Well, I got a feeling that because of the, uh, even though the, the Beatles were influenced by uh, early rockabilly stuff, they were they were influenced by Buddy Holly and, and Elvis and and uh, the Big Bopper and and uh, the early the early rockabilly stuff. They mm-hmm. started singing that stuff, and then they kind of uh, got into really writing and writing really well, and getting to more interesting lyrics than uh, than "She Loves You," yeah, 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 like they did. Um, and of course, they were influenced by by the blues and and by uh, you know all the uh, the big black artists like BB King and. And uh, you know the the major artists of, at that time, the, the major R and B artists, you know, uh, at that time. And I think because early in the sixties, early sixties, it was all romance kind of stuff. The, it was all teenage kind of uh, "I Love You, Baby" and uh, "Please Stay with Me" and um, you know, very redundant uh, kind of lyrics. <laughs> And when, yeah, and when they started doing their stuff, and of course Bob Dylan was involved then, and and uh, he, they were influenced. They, I, I read. Well, I'm not a big Beatles fan, even though I, don't worry, they're great writers. They were always great writers. They, were, they became terrific writers. At first, they were. They sounded horrible. I heard a couple of their first records, and um, they're very amateurish. Their early records. Then they developed, you know, and they, of course, they were a great producer who was an arranger and an orchestrator. His name was, uh, uh, Martin, uh, George Martin. They got assigned to him and, uh, they were really influenced by, I heard Dylan, I heard he was, they were influenced by Dylan a lot with their lyrics and their lyrics started again more sophisticated. So it worked into more sophistication in the lyrics and stuff like that. And then, of course, we went into the, uh, almost the heavy metal rock, uh, area where it was all fuzz guitars and stuff like that in the, um, the mid to late sixties like then. That's when my song Take Me For A Little While was recorded by the Vanilla Fudge. Uh, mm-hmm. it was like, uh, they were like a, a semi garage band, but they were good. And I, I had a group at that time that I was recording 
around 65 and 66, called the Vagrants. They're a very mm-hmm. heavy rock group from out in the uh, Long Island area. So uh, things are going towards a little more sophisticated lyrics, and the the uh, the sound was getting thicker and heavier and more rambunctious at that time. You know, mm-hmm. and right. uh, at that time I I was mostly listening to Otis Redding and and uh, uh, I was more influenced by by those kind of guys than. Um, where the roots really came from, you know, that the roots mm-hmm. didn't come from the, the other stuff. The roots came from, uh, you know, the the, uh, the guy, the, the real R&B guys, that's where the roots, roots came from. Of course, at that time, you had, the Motown was very hot in 65, 66, you know, and I, I remember working with Levi Stubbs a couple of times. We did a couple of Pepsi spots together. He was a great guy. But, uh, uh, they really got into a really sophisticated, more sophisticated lyrically and musically, you know, and uh, they influenced a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say Motown probably influenced more people than than anybody ever was influenced. You know, you Levi know? Stubbs and the Four Tops, as well as as uh, Stevie Wonder, they came from jazz. In fact, Fingertips is yep. from the um, album The Jazz Soul of Stevie Wonder, believe it or not. Uh-huh. Fingertips, they put two out for, I guess, the rock and roll, but number one was just as good. If you could just uh-huh. Fingertips one and two together, absolutely amazing. And that's why I asked about the music, because you had so much of a melting pot of different types of music being done yes. in the 60s. So it started out in, you know, the 60s with doo-wop, uh, 1960, and then you start getting into all these little mashups of different types of music. So that's why I thought I'd ask that before you got to BT Express, who were basically musicians and were influenced by jazz also. So... You know, you've got a lot of uh, of ground in that, say, 12, 13 years of, right, um, right. of music. And what was your, you know, you, you say that you were influenced mostly by blues, soul uh, music, the roots of that music. What did you think of a lot of the matchups? You have, have something like MacArthur Park, and then you've got Vanilla Fudge, and then you've got um, Steppen, Steppenwolf, and then you've got... Oh my heavens! You've got so much. You've got Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> uh, Janis right. Joplin. You keep going, and all of a sudden, you're dealing with um, people who want to chill out in the early '70s. When I first started uh-huh. uh, playing guitar, I really was uh-huh. more of a jazz-oriented guitarist, and I studied with uh-huh. uh, the the teacher who the who eventually, I believe, George Benson studied with my teacher a little bit after I studied with him and also uh, uh, Mickey Baker definitely studied with him before me way before me Mickey Guitar Baker and he was this guy was this guy was uh, he was a super super genius he just could play any instrument even if he don't even if he didn't know the instrument he could just pick it up and play it well, well what is this uh Oh, let me see that and uh, just grab it and play any. He could play anything on any instrument. He was, he was a great guitar player, but 
he was uh, a multi-instrumentalist. His name was Rector Bailey from Brooklyn, and he was, uh, he's out of a, <clears throat> almost out of a spaceship, this guy. This guy was, uh, uh, he was a real space cadet, you know. And not, not that he was high when, when, when he was giving lessons, but he was, uh, this guy was like, uh, out of a rocket ship. He, he, he's more different than anybody else you've ever imagined. I wanted to get yeah. into not only songwriting, but these backup bands. You've, you've got uh, the Funk Brothers, and then you've got right. uh, the whole wall of sound, and then out, uh, you know, you've got the, the session musicians out there in California, the Wrecking Crew, and right. many of these background, um, we call them background, but basically they're the music. They're real musicians. They're, they're, <laughs> they are really playing and, and they say James Jamerson is responsible for over, you know, two or three dozen Motown number ones, you know, because he played oh, on all those things. Um, what's going on since you are from the East Coast? Did you ever have any run-ins and or experience with the Brill Building, um, Entourage of writers and uh, uh, yeah, I almost I almost had an apartment in the building. I was I was in the Brill building almost every day, but because uh, uh-huh. the record company, well, I originally recorded for uh, G Records, uh, which was Roulette, uh, a subsidiary of Roulette. But then I recorded for Coed. Uh, Johnny Maestro was on Coed, and also the Duprees were on Coed, and Adam uh-huh. Wade was on Coed. I had my hit record on Coed. And they were in the Bill Building, so I was in the Bill Building all constantly. And so was Bert Backrack was always there, and uh, and Jerry Lee and Mike Stoller had an office there. I knew Jerry and Mike very well. Um, and Phil Spector was was around. I played on a lot of Phil Spector's dates. I used to play guitar on almost all of Phil Spector's dates in New York City. Um, so I knew a little bit about the Wall of Sound and everything. I was part of that wall. And um, uh, are you familiar with Bert Burns? Yes. Oh, yeah, okay, good. So he was a very close friend of mine. I used to play on all of his dates, you know, and uh, uh, almost all of his dates. I Originally, I played on Tristan Shout. I played guitar on Tristan Shout, and I played on a couple of Solomon Burt records and um, a lot of stuff that Bert Burns uh, produced, I played on. You know, he was, uh, he was a terrific producer, uh, a very fine songwriter, you know, in that idiom. And um, he used to use me on guitar all the time. You know, I was a lot of those songwriters on. became actual um, uh, artists later on, like uh, Neil Diamond, Neil Sedaka. Um, they yeah. started out as songwriter, yeah. Billy Joel, a <laughs> songwriter, you know. Um, right. And right. or uh, background players uh, of the '60s, like uh, you know, uh, who became Elton John and and others, they are were studio musicians. Many people don't realize that. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. So, in the going from the '60s to the '70s, we're we're doing into another sound. And you mentioned the BT Express. You, you're mentioning uh, musicians and whatnot. You mentioned the Motown sound. Um, right. And the background, we don't uh, give that as much credit. The studio musicians that 
really helped uh, a lot of these records become hits. Uh, and you were part of that. What are you seeing in the early 70s and and uh, and beyond where they focus most more so on the artist than they do the background? Because a lot of these background musicians never got credit for the work that they did in their lifetime. No, they just true. were known that's as right. a group. <laughs> right. That's very true. That's very true. Now in the seventies, that's uh, well, that's when I discovered the Beachy Express was around was around seventy four. It was like a kind of a dance disco craze starting then, and there was uh, uh, so there was. Everything was very dance-oriented and uh, uh, very bottom-oriented. And it all, a lot of it came from the Motown situation. How so? Well, you know, all those, you know, like all those Marvin Gaye records, and they were, they were great dance records, you know, like, uh, uh, I mean, I thought I, one of my favorite records of all time is Can I Get a Witness? Which I recorded, and I I have a version of it myself, but it's not not quite as good as Marvin's, but it's very respectable. But um, you know, Marvin Gaye with his "Ain't That Peculiar" stuff, and uh, and Levi with "Can't Help Myself." Was the, now I'm going back to the '60s because that was around that was around '65, '66, I think. But uh, you know, all those records were very, very, very well done. I mean. Uh, Barry Gordy was uh, was really good, and and I never knew that he wrote uh, the Jackie Wilson song um, uh, "Someone to Care, Someone to Someone to Share." Somebody, oh, to be loved. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to be loved. Yeah, he wrote "To Be Loved." He's a co-writer of "To yeah. Be Loved" or the main writer with someone else. I don't know who he wrote it with, but he also, I believe, he also wrote "Money" by Barrett Strong. You know. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, well, uh, the reason why I asked about the difference between the Motown and the disco sound, the disco sound was sort of repetitive lyrics to me. Um, it yeah, was, it you was. Know, some really great music uh, to a kind of Latin disco-ish beat. So it kind of got away from the R&B. And then you've got funk that brings back a lot of the R&B, but that's not until right. probably the end of the decade. Um, so I'm looking at the disco um, and that was pretty hot, maybe for about five to seven years, and then people got tired of that, and then went right. sort of back to the root of having lyrics and love songs right. and right, real true. songs, <laughs> you know, right, real songs, uh, rather than um, some of the the gaudy um, outfitted, which is kind of interesting to look at. You know, that wasn't my decade. I wasn't around, but I look at some of the ways they were dressing and over overcompensating with that for actual yeah. talent. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's true. That's true. Oh, <laughs> I wanted to actually ask you about something, and I talked to my grandpeople about this. I said, "How do you explain Screaming Jay Hawkins, who was a oh, he was a opera singer? <laughs> <laughs> he, that's what he was an opera singer. Believe it or not." I didn't know that. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, really, well, no kidding. I'm surprised. (laughs) I never, never heard that. You know, I put a spell on you. Didn't he do? I put a spell on you. Yeah. uh, Yeah, yeah. Didn't he do that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had a skeleton and a coffin, and I'm like, wow, that's really 
interesting. And I say the same thing from Screaming Joe Hawkins to, um, uh, oh, God, Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix could play guitar. Um, I don't think, I think, yeah, yeah, I'll just put it to you that way. He can play guitar, um, but I never understood some of the other stuff that he did. So I'm trying to understand that kind of phenomena. You were there. What? Well, he worked worked, uh, with my uh, guy I produced, uh, I produced uh, Joey D in the uh, the mid-60s. I produced Joey D in the Starlights, but previously to that, that Jimmy Hendrix had been in Joey's band for a while, you know, so was... Yeah, so he was played with Joe Ruth Pesci. Brown, and, yeah, he played with uh, uh, Ruth Brown. He played with also, uh, believe it or not, uh, James Brown. And oh, uh, there were oh, a lot yeah, of... That. Oh, yeah. He he was a session musician for a lot of people before he became a solo act. Uh-huh. And so I just I thought I'd say that you... Oh yeah, he was. Uh, in fact, there are a lot of pictures of him with various backing, backing various bands of very famous people before he gets to the Purple Haze bit. Yeah, and exactly. uh, the the late sixties, in the seventies, um, so we're still there. What's going on in your career? And is is um, the music that's being recorded? You, you, you know, of course, the stuff that you're, you're, you have, you've written and you've recorded. What's going on in the seventies musically uh, in your career? What's going on then? Well, in the seventies, I was um, I was recording for Buddha Buddha Records in the seventies. That's when I made my I made my um, initial album, my first album called Let Me Touch You in the early uh-huh. 70s. Uh-huh. And I I stayed with Buddha for a while, and then uh, um, then I had my own record company after that. Mm-hmm. But I had been at RCA Victor for a couple of years in the late mm-hmm. 60s, and then mm-hmm. I went to Buddha in, in the early 70s. And then after the, after the BP Express, and uh, right after the... After that, I remember maybe 76, 77, the late 70s, I had my own record label. It was distributed by Jubilee Records. It was called Toot. Toot Records. Mm-hmm. I recorded for my own label. And uh, it was basically an R&B label. I had a group called The Spirits. And a group uh, was a male male black group and, uh, and a female black group uh, called The Lovables. And they uh, had a couple of they, they weren't big hits, but they they got played on uh, the, uh, the a lot of the R and B stations. Payola, you did. would know you would you would know about Payola, and a lot of that went on not only through the fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties. Oh well, of and course, Payola. Listen, Payola goes on uh, <laughs> in the in everything, you know, and and even in the. U.S. government, and I mean, I play, I uh, I work with Alan Freed only one time down in Miami when my record was my record at that time was number one, and it was number, kind of number one, the top ten in a lot of areas, and number one in the Miami area, and also in a couple of other areas was number one. But I was the star of Alan Freed's show in Miami. Around 19, early 1963, and uh, well, what a nice, uh, what a good, 
nice fellow. I never met him before, and it was it was almost like meeting Frank Sinatra, you know, who I've I've never met. But um, and because I was grew up listening to Alan Freed, not constantly, but a lot, you know, because I was in that area. He was out in New York and WINS. So uh, meeting him later on when my record was number one uh, was was a big deal to me. You know, being being the star of the show at a drive-in, you know, uh, Alan mm-hmm. Freed presents Trey Martin, you know, at uh, the big drive-in theater, and a lot of people were there, a lot of, a lot of kids were there. It was exciting. I mentioned that, the payola, because you mentioned something about Dee Dee Warwick. It was Irma Franklin that did Peace of My Heart, and Burt Burns oh, was one of the people who actually produced that hit. Yeah, well, he wrote, wrote it. He wrote it with Jerry Ragavoy, too. Yeah. 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 Yes. So, um, you know, I, I asked is about Irma that. Is still around? Is there, I, I know we met her, but is Irma still around? Yeah, I believe she's she's still around. In fact, uh, oh, yeah. you, know, you can hear her her voice on commercials now. <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah, yeah she's still. So, but uh, it's um it's interesting. You mentioned uh, the, I mentioned payola. That is probably why you never heard a lot of uh, the Irma Franklin and uh, other uh, hits by people. So I just thought I'd ask you about that. Is that why? Did they prefer one group over the other, or what was really going on there? Because you got a lot of great uh, sides and great albums and great B-sides that should have been hits, but weren't. Well, you know, because if the promo guy, uh, if the promo guy wasn't tight with the disc jockeys, with the DJs, that's how we kicked off uh, um, BT Express. I mean, you know, uh, my... One of my partners, his name was Freddie Frank. He dealt with the DJs all the time. I don't know um, in what way, but of course in the dance, even at the dance clubs too. You know, they uh, guys wanted favors if they were going to play your record for play a record for you. If they were going to do you a favor, they wanted a favor. So uh, yeah, whether it was payola or just. Uh, Whatever the favor would be, you know, giving them some extra records or something like that. There was always some kind of a uh, a scene going on, you know. You you knew somebody personally, and they either liked you or you had to deal with them in some way in order to make make them want to play your record, you know. So that so the people whose record did not make it, and there was a lot of good records that didn't make it because the promo people. Who were behind the record? Who would be PRing the record? Did not do the right thing, and they they couldn't get the record played. You know? Wow, wow! Because you hear a lot of these songs on commercials now, and you go and look up the song, and you think it was a major hit. It wasn't. Um, right. You know, from Irma, from Irma Thomas to um, you know any of these. Uh, commercial hits that you hear today on television, you wonder who's getting compensated for that. Now, you as a songwriter, I wanted to ask you, uh, did you keep your publishing, and how important is that for a songwriter? Oh, publishing is, publishing is more important than writing the song itself, of course, uh, because then you license to other people, and uh, 
Um, of course, a lot of the publishers, um, um, I mean, I always, basically, I self-published almost throughout my whole career. I've been my own publisher, so I've been very lucky. But a lot of guys give up their publishing to other other companies, and the publisher will make a deal with um, somebody, uh, hypothetically, uh, maybe a Pepsi or something, and they'll get money, and that money's half, supposed to be half uh, to the writer. And uh, uh, they'll either tell the writer they got a certain amount of money, and it may not be the exact amount of money they got, or they won't say anything at all. And the the, uh, the artist, the writer, has to chase the publisher in order to eventually get paid. And then eventually they they pay them because they, they don't they don't offer the payment. You gotta chase them. I mean, I've never done that myself, but I know of a lot of people that got involved with the publishers where, uh, I remember walking down the street one day and, um, Neil, nice guy, Neil, anyway, I remember he was older than I, but he was walking towards me down the street and I said hello to him because I had done a couple of things with Neil. A couple of I said, Neil, I just did your song with uh, uh, General Electric. You know? He said, really? I said, yeah. I was breaking, up his, breaking up is hard to do. Yeah. So I Yeah, Sadaka. Neil Sadaka. Yeah, Neil Sadaka. Yeah. I said, Neil, I just did your song with, uh, with uh, General Electric. It was breaking up is hard to do. We did. He goes, well, I'm glad you told me because... Uh, but my publisher didn't let me know, you know? That's what he said. Wow. <laughs> so that's, yeah. So I guess eventually he looked at, he just said, thanks for telling me, you know, because I, otherwise I would have never known it, you know? And this is like a couple of, this is previously done a couple of months before I ran into him. So he, he should have known about it, but at that time he didn't know about it. He probably did find out about it afterwards. He asked about it and, if you don't ask, it's almost like don't ask, don't tell. If you don't ask them, they don't tell you. You know, the, the, so that's how he found out. Because I told Wow. Him. Now, Irma Thomas, we got two Irmas mixed up. Irma Franklin passed, uh, unfortunately, but Irma Thomas is the one in uh, one of the uh, Philadelphia, I think it's a Philadelphia spot. It, it says, uh, her song was, You Just Don't Taste It, You Feel It, a lip song by Irma Thomas. Uh she the one the that, uh, yeah, and she was the uh, soul queen of New Orleans, and so she's getting a lot, and she's actually still performing. So you hear Spencer Wiggins, um, you know, you hear him on a bank commercial, you hear her for a Philadelphia product, uh, whether it's Philadelphia cheese or whatever. But you know, you hear this music, and you wonder if the, the artists are even getting the money from their songs being played oh, in any of these commercials. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, residuals, I mean, I'm very, I know about that because I did a lot of jingle singing and, and sang on a lot of big, the biggest jingles in the world. But, uh, uh-huh. and I produced a lot of the biggest jingles too. My uh-huh. credential piece of the rock and, uh, and I used to sing on all the Pepsi commercials in the mid 60s. The residuals that you get from TV are almost like, uh, there's no problem with you, with you getting that union. Is after them all the time, and they they they're after all those people all the time. They they get the money, 
and the artist gets that money. The residuals from that stuff, they, it's like gold. You're, you're, you're sure to get that. As long as you signed up, you're with ACRA, Screen Actors Guild, you know, that's no problem. You're going to get that all the time. I know that for sure. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, it is. That's a good thing. But what do you say to many of your contemporaries that sold their publishings too early? Well, there's there's nothing to say to them. I mean, they shouldn't have done it, but, but they... Uh, I don't know about I don't know about selling I don't know what you mean about selling your publishing you know uh, uh, there are so solic- they do solicit like they solicit me all the time um, I get I get uh, notices where well we will buy your publishing from you you know like my whole catalog and stuff like right. that uh-huh. I, what you're talking about is that a writer would be would be writing and he goes. And he gets a record with an artist, but the artist either wants the publishing or the record company is associated with the publisher, and they want the publishing for the song. And the and the uh, the writer says, "Okay, I'm the writer. You can have the publishing." And and uh, the problem the problem with it is is that they don't get the right count uh, of what was sold, what, what money was made, and everything like that. And as the publisher, you know all that stuff. As the writer, who's divorced from the publishing company, doesn't doesn't find out that stuff until uh, there's something wrong. And then they try to collect from the publisher. And the publisher, well, we sold our company to such and such. And then we went with Universal and or with Sony. And then you, know, you try to get you the red tape on Sony and and. And universal and stuff like that, and, and it's like a it's like a nightmare. You know, you can't you can hardly deal with them. You can't even get through to anybody. So, uh, um, but as far as selling the publishing, you know, um, uh, writers just had to give up the publishing if they wanted to get the record, uh, right, by the artist. You know, so which is yeah. We, which is all right as long as as long as you're going to be dealt with uh, dealt with honestly by the publishers. Nothing wrong with that, you know. Because uh, the guy said, like, if I'm the writer and you and you want my publishing, but you'll you'll only record my song if you get my publishing, which is a lot of times a stipulation. Um, and I don't want to give it up, and I don't get the record. They don't record my song unless they love the song. And they figure they can never get a song better than that. Then they, then they'll they'll say, okay, well, we're recording anyway, and you can keep the publishing. You've been listening to Building Abundant Success with Sabrina Marie. Copyright October fourth, twenty twenty two. Stay tuned for part two.